From Philadelphia, 860 AM, WWDB Radio, Episode 4, Project Chaos. Welcome to the show. A show like no other, that's for sure. I want to begin today telling a little story. It's actually two stories I'm going to tell to get things going. And everybody likes to hear a little story. This little story, it's a little different than your normal run-of-the-mill story. Let me just jump into it. There's a favorite photo I have of our time deployed. And uh, I call it the War Pigs photo, which will make sense in a second. But this particular photo, uh, I wanted to be on the cover of the book, the new book coming out, Victory Over Chaos. I decided strategically, well, I didn't decide, I'll tell you that story as well, but didn't make it to the book cover, which was a bit of a shame. I think it's not appropriate for the book cover, but a great photo all the same. What is it about this photo that makes it so great? Well, the first thing you notice, the sky is completely black in the photo, but that's not because it's nighttime. It's because we're in the middle of the oil well fires. I try to describe to people how dark that condition was, and I use the, uh, I'll say that it was like dark room dark, but people haven't used film and regular cameras in so long, nobody even knows what that means anymore either. Uh, so what does it really mean? That it means that it was dark as dark can get. I don't know how else to say it. Absence of light. But there we were in the middle of the day, and in the photograph is the, the gun crew, and we're standing around the gun. The, all you see is the end of the gun. What do I mean by the gun? The cannon this big cannon to this big tube sticking through the middle of the photograph. And you the, the gun's so big, it doesn't even fit in the photo. It's like a big dragon. I just see the tail there. It's so big that there's a guy in the photograph. He's actually standing up on the tube. So you get a, got a sense of the scale of this thing. So there we are, the, the gun crew standing around the gun in the daytime that looks like night with a guy standing on top of the tube of this thing. And on the tube is written the words... War pigs. Now, we weren't the only gun to assess a name for ourselves. I don't even really know where the, the names came from. I happen to know the, the story of the war pigs, which uh, the claim to that is a guy named Big Bill from Indiana as well. We're going to have a couple mentions of Indiana today, but Big Bill claims that he was the one that came up with the name war pigs. Uh, we'll let him come on in a future date and justify that or not. I wouldn't know to say either way. But either way, uh, it's a photo of us standing around the gun in the oil well fires. It became my favorite photo of our time deployed. It did not make it to the cover of the book. Why is that? Well, because a good friend of mine saw me and said, nobody's going to know what that is because nobody knows what the end of a cannon looks like if they don't know what the whole cannon looks like because they have somebody to tell them. And I think he was very right about that. It just would have been wrong position for the book cover. Uh, but it still represents my, my favorite photo. Why is that? You look at the photograph. And you'll notice a couple things. We're pretty beat up. What does that mean? We're dirty, grungy. My boots are untied. My hair is a mess. Remember, we're active duty Marines. This is not what you would normally expect to see. I have white socks on, which was another little tactical, um, what could I say appropriately on the radio? I'll let you put the words together there. The point is, I didn't care. I don't think any of us care. And that's really the reason that I, I bring this whole story up. The name War Pigs, it really kind of stuck. Of course, we have a certain sense of pride around that. But uh, so did the guys with the other guns. One of the other guns I remember had a cool name, Dead Bang. Guys would assess these names. It's just a, a label 
that meant something for those of us that were there, represented the unit, the core, the camaraderie, however you want to say. But either way, the name War Pigs stuck to it, which is kind of cool. And we liked it. Now, some of you may know that there's a Black Sabbath song called War Pigs. Well, that song is not anything to do with the war pigs that we're talking about. Black Sabbath, I think that song is about an anti-war song or something like that. Now, there's another reference to war pigs, and that was a movie that was made about an army unit. The commander got in trouble. Now, here's a little tie that would tie to our war pigs photo. Uh, In this movie, War Pigs, the commander gets in trouble, and in order to redeem himself, he gets picked for this mission to stop the development of some German nuclear cannon or some some crazy. I never actually watched the whole movie. But his opportunity to, to save the free world, if you will, comes from himself, naturally, and a group of misfits that he's going to lead on this crazy mission, which he does. And that's about the only similarity that I can figure out. The group of misfits going to save the planet. I think that's kind of what we felt like. You know, I've said this before. It's not like we were Marine Recon. We weren't a bunch of bodybuilders. We didn't have, like, bandoliers of ammo draped across our chest or any of those things. But we knew how to get the job done. We were kind of the bad news bears. What's my point about all that? Well, it's good to be dirty, smelly, and nasty sometimes, you know. Uh, The battery, those guys, at least for that time, and I think I can safely say still indoors today, they became our family. We lived together. We slept together. We fought together. And uh, I know these days nobody likes to talk about being dirty and tired, but trust me, it's a good thing to push yourself like that. War Pigs, it was a great name for the gun. It's a photo that did not make the cover of the book, sadly, but it is on the cover of the website, projectchaos.org. I hope you check it out. There's a lot I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the legendary Battle of Veracruz in 1847. How many people know about that? None. Thank you. That's okay. We'll go over that history lesson today. It was Smedley Butler. Few people will know that name. He led the attack on Fort Riviera. I got to see a photo. I was doing the research for that. This is really incredible. And not everybody will understand what this means either, but I'll explain it to you. I'm doing research for this uh, Battle of Veracruz, which I I knew very little about myself. I come across a photo of then Colonel Lejeune. This is, you know, Camp Lejeune Lejeune. This is when this guy was still in his fighting uniform. Do you have any idea what it was like for me to see that? Amazing, really. And it was really cool. I want to talk about whistleblowers and the VA and a little bit about John McCain. I want to tell you this whole story that I'm going to get into with all this is big. Very, very big. We're going to go into some big stuff with our veterans, how we treat them as a country, what is morally appropriate in the way that we treat other human beings, why we allow this to happen to our own veterans. You're going to be amazed when I hear what I have to tell you today. And it's not anything that you would hear in the news or the mainstream media. But the big news today is that my brother, Big Mike, from Kokomo, Indiana, is with us. How are you, Mike? How's Indiana these days? There he is. Can you hear me? I can hear you, Mike. God, about time. No, it's uh, actually uh, it, it's cold and then warm, So, and I'm above the ground, so I'm happy. Yeah, well, that's always doing, a good brother? start. We're doing great. We're going to get started. I'm going to come back to you in a few minutes. I wanted to say hello, and uh, we're going to talk. Mike has some great information about the uh, VA. And I want to have you uh, listen to him firsthand. It's really kind of amazing, everything he has to talk about today. Anyway, welcome to Project Chaos. This is the radio show that brings you the mindset and perspective of our nation's warriors. I'm your host, Chris Kunkel, a United States Marine Corps veteran, 
author of my newest book, number four, this will be for me, Victory Over Chaos, which tells the true story behind the United States Marines' battle for Kafchi. It's not about history. It's not about entertaining stories. It's about legacy. We're here to share the true stories of our conflicts, of our triumphs, reminding veterans, active duty military, and our families of the commitments that we've made and the duties that we have. And also to set an example that our country deeply needs right now. We have a a moral crisis and a leadership crisis, and veterans are perfectly positioned to help with that. Veterans know how to rise above what we see today, and these stories will inspire you to do the same. But this show is about more than that. War is chaos. Chaos is disorder and confusion, and it's something that we see all around us today. The good news is that as veterans, we're well-trained to deal with chaos, So you'll find these stories inspiring and some that we can all use right now. This is Project Chaos, a radio show like no other. I'll tell you, it's been a real journey getting to this point, listening to talk radio since I was just 10 years old. It's a true story, this station right here. It's been my lifelong dream to be behind this microphone. In the past six years, I've produced over 1,600 podcasts and counting. I've published three books with my newest book being number four, and it will also be the fourth one that will be on Audible, which I've also narrated myself. I say all this to tell you this. My goal, as I'm here today, honored to speak to you about the Marine Corps, honored to speak to you about our military, honored to speak to you about our country, And to do it from the studios of WWDB, my goal is simply to provide the best possible radio show with the highest level of integrity. I don't care about the biggest or the highest paid. Since I was 17 years old, I took an oath to join the Marine Corps. I only ever strive to be the best I can. I hope you like what you hear. Please be sure to visit projectchaos.org. Let's get into the Battle of Veracruz a little bit. This is important history for our country. And you've never heard of it, have you? I'm going to say that most people listening in the word Battle of Veracruz know that these campaigns really went on. We're going to talk a little bit more about it next week as well. There's an old Marine general who's a legend among Marines. Now, it's not General Lejeune, but I did mention his name. And somebody that I'm going to be talking about again in the future. Another example of somebody who was vicious and that he attacked everything with purpose, even after he got out, even after he finished his active duty. He was a great fighter, a strong leader outspoken on behalf of Marines long after his retirement. His name is Smedley Butler. It's a name that every Marine learns in boot camp. Everybody knows the history and the role that Smedley Butler played in that. History, legacy, tradition, these are things that are important to teaching new Marines about the Marine Corps. And I think it's just as important about our country. We give up this history, we give up a piece of ourselves that we can't afford to give up right now. If you don't know, Smedley Butler won two medals of honor, but he also earned a name for himself when he became very critical of the industrial military machine, particularly how it's funded. We're going to talk about that more another time, but just remember I said that as we go on the show today. Today, I want to tell you about the story story of the Battle of Veracruz. This is where Smedley Butler won his second medal of honor. And uh, I mentioned to you in researching this story that I, I stumbled across this photo of Colonel Lejeune, who would have uh, had Camp Lejeune named after him, a legendary photo that I never saw before. And it's another example. I think that what I don't know that I can communicate this, obviously. I'm going to try and describe to you what the photograph meant to me, and you can't see the photograph. And even if you could, it wouldn't have the same impact on you. But let me try and describe it. 
This is a guy, General Lejeune, that had a base named after him. I mean, it's a, like, I mean, how much higher honor can you really get? Then for me to see the photograph with his sergeant major and he's sitting there. I look at how everybody's sitting even. How are they presenting themselves? It's just amazing. Then Colonel Lejeune, you could just tell that this was a guy who meant business. And that was not the ceremonial side of of Lejeune there. It was fantastic. And I say all that just to say to you, um, you know, that that these stories have a tie, that we're all human and that we're all capable of learning these important lessons from these great men that came before us, in some cases women as well. But anyway, uh, the Battle of Veracruz, uh, I was doing the research. I came across the photo. I was looking for information about Smedley Butler and what he had done during his active duty. And this campaign uh, at Veracruz was one of them. And basically the story goes like many other Marine Corps stories go. Smedley Butler, I don't know, he was, would have been a colonel or a lieutenant colonel or something at that time. He was basically a battalion commander. And they say to, to, uh, to Smedley Butler, listen, your job is to go down and uh, fight in the Battle of Veracruz. And in particular, there was a final objective, uh, was to secure Fort Riviera, which was part of the battle there. So the, the, the beginning part of this story, the Marines go down, and they need to make an amphibious landing. So they're going down to Mexico, where this was, on ships, and they're going to begin a naval bombardment of some kind. They're going to begin laying fire down on the beach, and that's going to begin preparing the battlefield, if you will, and then the Marines are going to come. This way of, of, of doing a, um, uh, an amphibious assault is uniquely something that is Marine, and it's uniquely aggressive. If you can just imagine being on a quiet beach, and all of a sudden, first the haymakers come in, whether it's the planes, the, the naval gunfire, is going to start hitting, and that's going to shake things up. And then all of a sudden, you're going to have Marines coming, aboard the, uh, coming on shore in mass, and it's not a pretty sight, really, if you're on the receiving end of it. It worked very effectively for many years. Well, they did this at Fort Riviera, uh, at uh, uh, Veracruz, and it worked perfectly. I mean, the battle was over in about 20 minutes, literally. But there was one more objective, and that was Fort Riviera. And that's the part that I want to tell you about. So the Marines get there. They do their amphibious assault. It goes great. They, they get inside, ultimately take Fort Riviera. But it's that part that I want to talk about, and they get to that wall. One last step to take before this is over. And what do they find? They find an impenetrable wall. There was nowhere to go. I don't know what it was, probably thick timbers if I had to guess. Maybe they could try and climb it, but they get shot doing that. You know, what are they going to do? Blow a hole in it? I suppose all these were different options they might have discussed. But I don't think any of them were good options for a lot of different reasons we don't need to discuss here right now. So what do the Marines do? tenacious. They're not going to walk away. Well, let me introduce you to a term that that Marines know well. Make a hole. And it's a term that's used to describe making room where none is available, usually to let somebody through. In the case of Fort Riviera, the Marines couldn't make a hole, so they found one. They found a hole in the walls of this fort just big enough for one Marine at a time to squeeze through. Imagine this now. You're fighting this battle. You're on the last leg. You get to this giant wall. You find a hole, and they say, you go first. Well, somebody did. They all did. They fought their way in, hand-to-hand combat, knife fighting. What does any of this have to do with the world today? Simple. You need to do whatever it takes to accomplish what you want. You can't let anything stop you, whether it's a wall or another person. If that means 
shrinking down like a rat and squeezing through a hole across a barrier, so be it. Don't let anything stop you. That's what Smedley Butler needs to be remembered for. We'll be back with my brother Big Mike here in just a few minutes. See you there. Good job, of course. And I was lucky to land an entry-level position on a survey crew for an engineering firm. Now, little did I know what I was in for. Surveying, if you don't know, is an ancient art used to measure, well, just about everything, really. Well, in the case of Stout Tech and Ellie, we were primarily laying out new roads, developments, pipes, infrastructure, even railroad lines. It was amazing, really, taking mathematical equations and using it to lay out buildings, roads, and properties. It seemed like back then, if there was a project going on in Montgomery County, Stout Tacanelli was involved. Michael Tacanelli, a little younger back then, was the party chief. We hit it off well because he operates in a very disciplined fashion. It's true, survey, like a lot of things, has changed. It's all digital and computers now. But just like successful military units, engineering and land surveying still require professional discipline that delivers accurate results. Michael's been doing it now for over 40 years. Of course, STA Engineering has all the latest technology, but it's the decades of experience delivering top quality results to developers and property owners across southeastern Pennsylvania that matter most. If you need survey, help with zoning, subdivisions, business expansion, make sure you get the right surveyor and engineer. Complicated projects require the right professionals to make sure the project is completed smoothly. Michael Tacanelli and his team of professionals at STA Engineering have a long, strong track record of delivering results. Check with any municipality in the area, and they've likely seen an STA Engineering plan. Make sure your project is handled professionally. Contact my brother Michael at STA Engineering. STA Engineering, land surveyors and engineers ready to help make your next project a success. STA Engineering. Ask for Michael Tacanelli. Have you ever seen the Statue of Liberty in person? What an amazing sight. This huge, magnificent, protruding out of the water. Amazing, really. But what does she stand for exactly? Well, liberty, obviously, but it's more than that. It's important because we didn't always have it, and there's no guarantee that we always will. America wasn't always free. It's easy to forget that, but it's true. There was a time not all that long ago that freedom didn't exist here, and when the opportunity came to seize it, not everybody wanted to be free, as amazing as that sounds. The colonies were very divided. Many people don't know this. People's minds and hearts right here in America, so hard they didn't want freedom. Right here in the land of the free. One little book changed all that. One little book that convinced millions of people that freedom was worth the sacrifice and unified everyone with its message. The book, in case you don't know, was Common Sense by Thomas Paine. That book, Common Sense, was a call for independence. But the Declaration of Independence had already been written, signed, and sent to the king. And the Revolutionary War was well underway. So why would a book be needed making the argument for independence? And the answer is because a lot of people didn't want freedom. The Revolutionary War brought some dark days. People were suffering and they didn't agree at all. It was as much a civil war as it was a war for independence. It's a book that made the rallying call for freedom and justice, and it unified the colonies and solidified our resolve, and it inspired the world. Today, many people take this freedom for granted, and the country is divided as ever. 
Let the Statue of Liberty remind us how important we consider all this very carefully. That's why this little book is so important today, to remind us so we don't forget how fragile freedom is and how important it is for our children. If you haven't already read it, I highly recommend you check out Common Sense in Modern English by Christopher Scott. My name is Christopher Scott Kunkel. I'm a Marine veteran and author of Common Sense in Modern English. You can also listen to it on Audible. Check it out at projectchaos.org. Thanks for listening and make it a great day. Here we go. One of the things I wanted to mention to you, one of the chapters of my new book, Victory Over Chaos, is titled Gas, Gas, Gas. What is that chapter about? Well, you might remember Colin Powell's UN speech where he repeated it over and over again, weapons of mass destruction. But then suddenly they say they never found anything. What really happened in that story? Well, you'll have to get the book to find out the answer to that question. But there's other exposures that veterans have been dealing with for years. And I've got my brother Mike on the line who's going to come on and talk a little bit about what goes on at the VA. But I want to tell you a couple of quick stories here real quick in case you don't know. You heard uh, some of the stories of military members getting discharged for refusing the experimental vaccine. I know this is a difficult conversation. Some people have difficult time having this conversation in, in certain circles. I want to just remind you of this. This is well publicized, and maybe we'll go into it a little bit more. We'll see if we have time. Uh, But well documented from the VA website, so don't question me on this. The Edgewood-Aberdeen experiments. From 1955 to 1975, the United States Army Chemical Corps conducted classified medical studies in Maryland. The purpose was to evaluate the impact of low-dose chemical warfare agents on military personnel and to test protective clothing and pharmaceuticals. You can take protective clothing out of that sentence. I guarantee you there was none of that going on. That's just a little filler to make it sound like it was something a little better than it was. They're treating people like lab rats. It went on for 20 years. It's well documented. So fast forward to COVID. And there was people in the military. I'm not taking that garbage. Whether you want to agree with it or not, they weren't given an option. They were kicked out, as you know. How many? 8,400 lives destroyed because of the leadership failure in our military. Some of them were fighting back. Young Marine Lance Corporal, who refused the COVID-19, uh, COVID-19 vaccine, kicked out of the Marine Corps, protested at the front gate in Japan, got arrested. She wouldn't leave. They tried shipping her back as a female Marine, no less. She didn't want to be subjected to, vac- to the vaccines. She stood on her principles that it was an unlawful order. She spent 113 days in the brig for it. She said anybody who willingly separated from the military after refusing the COVID vaccine was verifiably a coward. Lance Corporal Arnett refused to take the vaccine, was willing to go to jail for it. Who cares, right? Nobody cares. 8,400 military, that's their problem. How about this story? Lieutenant uh, Ted Macy was a 22-year veteran. He was originally enlisted, became an officer. He was a commissioned officer at the Medical Service Corps. Had always done everything that the military had asked him. Uh, Suddenly, he begins reporting some discrepancies in data. 
This information became public. He said, look, there's information about um, the response to these different medications and uh, the different effects that they're having. Um, And he was basically silenced for that, told to be quiet. Now, you would think that this would be a good thing. After the Gulf War, soldiers began to report a wide range of symptoms now termed Gulf War Syndrome. Maybe you remember this. They said everybody was nuts. Yeah, we're all crazy. You know, I wake up every day. I'm throwing up. Everybody's like, oh, it's all in your head. Yeah, I'm sure it is, right? According to the VA, it's estimated that up to 32% of veterans who served in the 1990-91 Gulf War, approximately 250,000 servicemen and women suffer from this set of symptoms. Because they're all crazy, right? One in four, practically, that deployed. Oh, then there's this. The common variable amongst these troops is the anthrax vaccine, referred to as Vaccine A in military records. Lieutenant Macy became an official whistleblower, which should have afforded him legal protections, which he didn't get, at least to the extent he should have been provided. He was able to, uh, with access to the Defense Medical Epidemiology Database, provided detailed data on a range of health-related conditions. Let me just tell you the story that our military and the VA, they knew, they knew, they knew that they did it. They knew that that was the cause of it. And what did they do? They turned around and they said that we were nuts for even bringing it up. How many lives Ruined from all this. I don't know. How much more evidence do you need? I can give you as much as you want. Big Mike, what do you think of these vaccines? What do you have to say about all the vaccines? That the It seemed like every week we were lined up for a new vaccine. What, do, what would you say about the? Do you trust the vaccines? How about we start there? You know, uh, some vaccines I do trust and some I don't. I mean, um, you know, we look at the flu shot and things like that. And I think what I'm really more concerned about that with the vaccine itself is what they put in the vaccine to cause what they call a hyper uh, immune response. And that's how typically all vaccines work. You know, sometimes they put like a, a special type of mercury in there that they claim is, um, you know, preservative, but in all actuality, it causes your immune system to basically go into overdrive. And that's what I'm more concerned than the vaccines itself. So now, I'm not, I'm not a doctor. Oh, I'm not a biologist. I'm not a scientist. Um, I kind of know what you're talking about because like a lot of veterans, you kind of become forced to get a little bit of an education on this. Right. And you hear about these stories. Uh, My poor mother-in-law, for example, uh, she's having autoimmune issues as well. Uh, But I want to switch gears on this a second, my brother, because we could definitely talk about that all day. I want to talk a little bit more about what's happening on the other end. How how do you feel like this lieutenant that came forward with this information? He should have got a medal. He didn't get one. How would, how would you say that whistleblowers are handled in the VA? <laughs> the VA will handle whistleblowers however they please because there's there is no recourse really. Um, you know, when I blew the whistle on the VA, I was kind of naive about it, and it was you know I assumed I would give uh, Office of Inspector General you know the evidence that I had, which was lock solid. And they would come in and do an investigation. But it's not what happened. Um, do you want me to go into that story right now? Just yeah, give us the highlights of it. That. Yes. Yeah, all what right. happened to you? So you you saw, you, first of all, what is it that you saw that you were so concerned about that you blew the whistle? Let me guess. Well, let, me guess. You you know, getting, let me guess. It wasn't your vacation time, the break room. Was it along <laughs> those lines? 
Huh? No, no. no. Wasn't working no, conditions. No, no. What was it, Mike? No. Well, you know, I, I you know, I had been working for the VA for a few years. They were doing different roles and whatnot. It ended up in uh, the Rural Health Initiative. And I, I don't think they're around anymore. But basically, um, you know, around 2013, um, they started this uh, outreach program, which was rural health, because, you know, they determined that um, uh, veterans and people in general in rural areas were getting less health care than people like in metropolitan areas, obviously. This is important to pay attention to, because I was just looking at some similar things. So for people listening, what Mike is saying is, at what state were you in? When the, was this in North Carolina? Yeah, it was North Carolina. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the VA comes down. They'll probably put out a lot of literature to the taxpayers. Oh, look at we're going to go proactively find the veterans, essentially, right? Correct. Yep. So it should Correct. be a good thing. Go ahead, take it from there. Well, you know, we, um, you know, my role kind of kind of developed over time and more and more responsibility. But basically, we would do these outreach events. You know, like you know, they were having like a you know like a county fair or some other type of thing where a lot of people would gather, we would include ourselves in that and, and try to get veterans to enroll in VA health care if they qualified. Todd, sure. and we had everything that we, we had, the computers, all that stuff. You know, we started meeting like a, a lot of hostility and I started, you know, people were telling me, it's like, well, you know, they said I didn't qualify. Like I, I tried to enroll last year or the year before or five years ago, you know, whatever the time frame is. And I would you know, get gather their information because I was, you know, I knew what all the enrollment criteria was, the qualification criteria was, and I'd be, I'd be like, you know, no, sir, ma'am. I said you do qualify. You qualified back then, and I would get them enrolled, and they would never get called, or they would say they got called, and then uh, you know, I would talk to the veteran, and they would swear up and down, oh, no one ever called me. So what was yeah, going on? Yeah, what was going on? Well, the. Th- the well, the issue was, as we as we found out, was that uh, um, you know people in upper management there were concerned about what they call Vero dollars. It's either Vero or Vero dollars. I can't quite remember. But basically, how it is is that you have a VA hospital, you have X amount of patients, and each each veteran will be assigned a certain monetary amount to receive their care from the VA budget. So you know, if you had a hospital, let's just you know keep the number simple. You know, you had 100 veterans at this uh, hospital, you would get so much money per veteran for that, and that would allow you to hire personnel, uh, maintenance on the building. Like, if you needed an M, you know, like a, a CT scan or more x ray equipment, you need, you know, you could buy that equipment, hire the personnel to operate that stuff, of course, get more doctors and things like that. But there was always a lag time in, in the Vero dollars. Like, it was a 12 month lag time for the hospital to actually see that stuff. So some of the people in the upper management were basically pressuring people to, like, you know, not enroll people or because some of the mandates that, like, you know, like if a veteran enrolled, you know, they had to be seen in so many days, you know, it put a lot of pressure on the clinics, you know, like doctor slots and new patient exams and things like that. So, you know, there, there was like this subtle pressure not to do that. So, you know, veterans would call in and, and say, hey, I enrolled, I want to set up an appointment. They'd be like, okay, they would actually sometimes set the appointment up, and there would be a notation there, uh, veteran no-showed. Wow. Or sometimes, you know, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't tell the veteran when their appointment was. So you got a guy so, that could be sick from an anthrax vaccine, is throwing yeah. up every day, you know, blood, whatever. He thinks he's yeah. sick. He goes down to the VA, the first thing they're going to tell them, ah, the Gulf War illness, that's not really a real thing, even though they knew otherwise, and yeah. they even probably knew who had it. 
right? Because they knew who had the oh, yeah. that that uh, they know who has these these uh, different uh, uh, vaccines that they're giving out. So that guy comes back. He goes to the VA. He gets thrown out. He runs into you at the fair, and you're like, "No, come on, man! I'm going to get you into the system." He finally sees some relief, or whatever. By the way, whatever his story is, mm-hmm. right? His right. knees blown out, his back's blown out. There's a million stories, you know, and and nobody wants to know. Nobody wants to hear the dark, dirty stories. But how about the guy that comes home and he's banged up and he, and he can't work or he can't do the things that he used to do, and there's no support, no help? You come in, you actually extend a handout to get him signed up. And then the VA, because they want their Vero dollars, they want to make their quota, they don't even see the guy. So you see this going on, and you had a way of matching up the data to prove that this was going on, I believe, from what you told me, right? Oh, absolutely. I had, yeah, I had access. And, like, you know, I, I gave my heart and soul to this job. I mean, I was coming in. I mean, I, I would say for, like, three years, it's, like, the only time I would take off. Because I have a chronic illness myself and other issues. The only time I would take off would be, like, for doctor's appointments and if I felt sick. I was coming in that place Saturday and Sunday and doing follow-up calls with these veterans that I had, let's say, enrolled the week before, a couple weeks before, and I would check to see if they'd been seen yet. If they hadn't been seen yet, I would call them, and they'd be like, well, no one has, uh, no one has contacted me for, for an appointment yet, which, again, you know, like after, like at the time I was in there, they, I'm sure things have changed. It's been quite a few years, but, you know, you had X amount of time from when they were enrolled to contact them for an appointment. It wasn't the veteran's responsibility to call the hospital. It was the hospital, the VA's responsibility to call them to schedule what they call a new patient exam. So you see these so guys getting screwed. You know what it's like because you had been in a similar spot. You're trying to help them yeah. out. You uncover the data to prove all this. Who did you make the complaint to then, the initial complaint? Well, I went to, um, um, you know, the supervisor. Uh, I didn't go to the chief of HADS, but I went to HADS is a hospital administrative services, and that's where, like, all this stuff gets done. They're the ones that are responsible for the administration portion of the hospital. But anyhow, I, I went to the supervisor there, who I'd worked for for a bit before I you know, made the move to, move to rural health. And I went to him, and I, and I basically described, you know, what was going down. And I said, I, you know, I need some answers for this because I feel compelled to, to file a complaint with the Officer Inspector General. And this was in um, April of 2014. This is like about a month before the VA scandal broke in, in uh, I think it was May or June. Uh, in 2014 when the VA scandal broke. And if you don't know what that is, you can look it up. You can Google that and get all the information. That is it's a very similar situation to what I was going through. So either way, um, you know, I, I, I didn't, like, pose it as, like, a threat. It was just kind of like a conversational thing where I said, you know, I'm feeling compelled to do something about this. I mean, this, this needs to change. So, you know, it was like a five-minute conversation. I left, and then I just went back doing my job. And, of course, it continued and continued. And I got to the point where, you know, I went to my supervisor and um, was showing him all this stuff. And, you know, I basically told him, I said, look, I'm, you know, I'm contacting the OIG because this is ridiculous. What happened from there? Did they they give you an award? They were like, gee, Mike, thanks for pointing this out. (laughs) We're the VA. We want to help veterans. Thanks for uncovering. No, they didn't say that? No, this is basically like what happened was, I'm going to give you a quick analogy. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but basically... This is, this is how the IG operates and how I think it works, not just in the VA, but government-wide. But it was basically like, uh, I called the police because I just saw my neighbor murder his wife. I even have it on video, okay? Call the cops, and, like, instead of going there and arresting people or doing any type of investigation, they knock on his door, and they say, Mr. So-and-so, your neighbor saw you murder your wife. Uh, you have 30 days to explain yourself. <laughs> and then they leave. 
And then during that 30 days, my neighbors shooting at my house, you know, burning dog poop in front of my door, uh, flattening my tires, threatening my livelihood and my family. And um, nothing is ever done. No one is ever held accountable. And then an investigator will come to me and uh, ask me what the evidence is, and they treat me like a hostile witness or something like that. And that's exactly what happened. I was sitting in my office. OIG finally shows up, and I'm being treated like like I'm the I'm the like one you're the criminal, Mike. I got to take a yeah. quick quick break here, buddy. And then we'll be stay on the line if you can. I want to talk to you some more about this, and I want to talk about the flow of money. Crazy. You go in there thinking you're doing the right thing, you get treated like the criminal. We'll be back in just a couple minutes. Hope to see you there. Did you know that there's over 90,000 self-help books on Amazon? 90,000 self-help books with that many books to help people. Don't you think that all the problems would be solved? 90,000 books to choose from. You think you could find the answer to just about any problem, right? But with all those books, they haven't solved all the problems. As a matter of fact, there's more problems than ever. 40 million people suffer from anxiety. 15 million people with depression, 8 million people with PTSD, and that's not even touching all the people that are living a life of quiet desperation, people just getting by, people going through the motions just trying to survive, people that have given up on their dreams if they ever even had any in the first place. So why would I write another self-help book? Here's the thing I've noticed about the self-help and personal development business. The information that's being put out there is mostly philosophical. And it's mostly the same information being repeated over and over again. I saw a recent poll saying that 80% of young people feel that they could write a self-help book. Well, talk is cheap. I haven't seen any great bestsellers appearing on the list. Fact is, most of what's out there is theoretical, overly general, and lacks clear instruction. It lacks a plan. And so what you have is an entire industry that's selling the same information over and over again. That's why I wrote Be the Lion, to give people a definitive plan for achievement so you can succeed at whatever you want, so you can stop dreaming and start doing, stop accepting and start accomplishing. I'm not what you would consider a self-help guy. I'm not a motivational speaker. I'm not a coach or a consultant or a guru. And here's the thing. I'm sharing with you specific examples of what works. By works, I mean methods to approach any goal that have produced spectacular results over and over again. For example, I've often said that if you want to get good at something, do it often. If you want to become really good at something, do it every day. But if you want to become the best, you're going to have to do it more than once a day. In other words, lots of hard work. There's an old saying, those that can't do, teach. I don't mean to be disrespectful to teachers, but here's the point. The personal development business has turned into one of those get-rich schemes where somebody tells you how to get rich and successful, but they're the ones that are telling you how to do it, and if you buy the program, you're making them rich. Yeah, they're getting rich, telling other people how to get rich, but the reality is very few people ever get rich off of the advice they offer. That's what motivational speaking, personal development, and self-help is turned into. Not exactly, but you get the idea. I have a friend that owns a bunch of businesses, super successful guy, worth, I don't know, probably over $100 million. This is a guy that knows business. He says, companies that focus on profits rarely achieve it. And companies that focus on solving a problem or a need are usually very profitable. 
That's why I focused on sharing the simple solutions. Check out my book, Be the Lion. It's available at all major retailers. Be the Lion, the secret to massive accomplishment. Whether you feel like your life's dreams are slipping by, or you just can't get started, or you're mired down by negative thinking, this book will make sure that this year is the best year of your life. Don't take my word for it. Check it out for yourself. The book is called Be the Lion. Make it a great day. I feel like we're getting ready to start an Eagles game or something like that with that music we're rolling back to. I'm going to have to rethink that a little bit, but it's uh, got a pretty good beat to it. All right, what are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about vaccines that are used on military personnel that haven't been properly tested. But it goes beyond that, uh, even beyond the COVID vaccine. And, and maybe for people listening that aren't military or veterans and you say, that's part of it, isn't it? Well, look at what's happened. If we don't fight the fight, then you're going to be doing it to everybody. And it's not right. Let me use an example to you. I mentioned earlier in the show that from 1955 to 1975, the United States Army Chemical Corps. Have you ever even heard of such a thing? This is right on the Veterans Administration website. Don't call me a conspiracy theorist. I got it right from the government-approved website. It's right here. U.S. Army Chemical Corps conducting experiments on on military personnel. From 1955 to 1975. I want to watch my mouth a little bit. I get very upset talking about these things. But the um, the people who perpetrate these things, the generals, the high-ranking officials, so to speak, sometimes popular fools, whatever the case might be, they're going to come out. They're going to take a position on all this. No, 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 no. This is good, they say. This is important the defense of our country, that these tests be done. Do you agree with that? Who agrees with that? I'd like to hear from you. Who thinks that this testing is morally acceptable? Why don't you do it? If it's so okay, if it's so good for for peace and good order, why doesn't everybody do it? Why don't your kids do it? Why does my kid have to do it? Why doesn't anybody get told? Why don't they take volunteers? They even say right here, it's very nice here, determining risk. Then they have health concerns. Mike's still with us. Maybe he can comment on this. If you're concerned about exposures during the Edgewood Aberdeen chemical tests, talk to your health care provider or your local environmental health provider because everybody has one of those. There is no VA environmental health registry associated with the Edgewood Aberdeen chemical tests. But the VA offers a variety. Get the hell out of here. I can't take it anymore. Um, It's unbelievable to me that the VA, the military, would treat our veterans and our personnel like that without their permission, without asking them. Mike, there's a little part of this story that uh, I wanted to talk about a little bit different, bro, that you started bringing up. And that's the the flow of the money. And let me just um, get into this a second here. And the the Secretary of Defense, when they write these memos saying, you know, everybody must and you shall, they fail to mention uh, in that requirement that the military personnel being forced to take the vaccinations, that part is true. But you know what else is true? That there were companies making big, big money off of this. It was Smedley Butler who first raised this issue. Uh, in a speech that he did, War is a Racket. We're going to talk about that hopefully next week. But uh, I want to give you a clear example. 
veterans are often asked, or I get often asked by people, not just veterans, what do I think of John McCain? What do people think of John McCain? We don't have enough time to go into that all today, but I wanted to just mention this little headline. Biden nominates Cindy McCain to the U.N. Food and Agriculture Post. Why would the Democrat president be nominating the wife of a dead senator to the U.N. Food and Agriculture Post? I can tell you why. There's only one reason why, so that she can fill her filthy little pockets. Mike, what do you have to say about John McCain? Anything good? No. <laughs> uh, you know, I, you know, how can I put this? You know, he rose to cage definitely during the Vietnam War and while he was in the, in the um, you know, the Hanoi Hilton and, and things like that. I respect his service. I respect what he did there. However, as a senator, you know, you know, he was on the Veteran Advisory Board, I think, on the Senate, something like that. I know he held a lot of seats there. But there was a couple times where I contacted him when I lived in Arizona, um, you know, concerning, you know, the health care is receiving at the VA there. And, and, of course, that's the Phoenix scandal area again. And uh, actually lived there before that. And I got my, received my care from that, that system for quite a few years. Hold on one second, Mike. Yeah. To, to say that it's a, yeah. uh, whatever, a difficult area for the VA. More veterans died in the Phoenix VA hospital under John McCain's watch that I'll go out on a limb and say than in any other hospital during the same period of time. Tell me that it was not the worst cesspool. There's a guy who's supposed to be a prisoner of war, a war hero, right? A national leader sitting on the on the Senate uh, Arms Committee, but nothing gets done for the Phoenix VA. Look at the difference between the character of John McCain, who sat there and filled his pockets versus Smedley Butler standing there next to Colonel Lejeune in, in their battle uniform. Huge difference in yeah. the character of those men. I don't mean to be shouting at you, Mike. Yeah, no, but, that's fine. I mean, I get you. Now it's like I'm angry about it, too, because you're right. The man did nothing. He did nothing for me. I mean, when I contacted him, I just got a curt letter from his staff. You know, I mean, it was like there was it just seemed like there was like no involvement or any care whatsoever what was going on with a veteran. Let me tell you what he's like. You, you, you used a great analogy, Mike. You know, when you were talking about, imagine that your neighbors over there, you know, throwing dog feces in the yard, attacking you. You call the cops, and like, well, ah, we're gonna, they're gonna, we're gonna give them thirty days for they get some goofy investigation. And you immediately know that something's not right. Let me point out a couple of things to you. Uh, the majority of VA whistleblowers report retaliation. Um, yeah, it has been since nineteen thirty-three, uh, since Smedley Butler wrote, wrote "War Is a Racket." But let me give you another analogy to kind of piggyback off of yours. How I feel about John McCain. You use the analogy of the neighbor, right? You go to the VA thinking they're going to help you, and next, what do you mean? What do you mean you're throwing up? What do you mean you're having uh, digestive issues? It's all in your head. You're just trying to scam mm-hmm. the system, right? They make you seem like you're a lunatic. Go out publicly. Right, go out today publicly and say I'm a Gulf War veteran with gastrointestinal issues, and see what, how people react to that. Not going to be tough. But let me give you yeah. let me give you another analogy that I'll describe John McCain. Imagine that uh, this is how vile he is. Imagine that your son gets uh, accused of murder. All right, it's your adult son. Uh, he's charged. He's going to you know, and if he's you know, committed convicted of this, he's going to go to jail for the rest of his life. And you know, without a shadow of a doubt, that he's innocent because you're his alibi. He was with you, okay? So your son gets arrested. He's being charged. You say, hey, relax. We'll fight this. We'll get through it. You go. You mortgage the house. You sell everything. And you get a lawyer. 
about halfway through the trial, you're sitting there scratching your head and you say, man, that didn't sound right what you said. And he's, you know, he gives you one of the typical lines where we go, well, it's complicated or you wouldn't understand. Well, I think I do. But then you see that that same filthy lawyer that you just mortgaged your house to keep your son free, you're in his office and you see a piece of paper that that guy's getting paid by the other side. What would you say to that in that situation? It's exactly what John McCain and our political leadership has been doing. How can you say that they're fairly representing us or the American taxpayer when uh, John McCain's wife, Cindy McCain, is being appointed to the U.N. Food and Agriculture Post? But um, it's a great analogy that you you used, Mike. What what would you say uh, in terms of solutions or what is going? Is the VA totally corrupt, would you say? Is it like not even worth uh, visiting? How would you categorize it? Well, I mean, personally, I mean, it's like the VA would be my last choice for health care. There's no doubt. Um, you know, when that uh, OIG investigator showed up in my office again, you know, um, treated me like a hostile witness, you know, he, he wanted to see the evidence. And I said, well, there's HIPAA laws. They said, can I show you the evidence? Because I had names and social security numbers and things like that. I had all that evidence in a secure location in my office, right? Mm-hmm. And I said, I can show it to you, but can I... And, I, and he wouldn't, you know, he was like, well, you know, you're going to have to talk to a lawyer about that. Wow. And I looked at him, and, I, and at that point, I got pissed off. Yeah. You know, and I'm a Marine, and I'm always a Marine, and that jerk was a Marine as well. And I said, you got to be kidding me. I said, you cannot tell me whether I'd be violating HIPAA laws and, you know, and, and getting myself in trouble by showing you this information. I said, what kind of nonsense is that? Stalling yeah, the investigation. I, I, yeah, yeah, and I was just like, look, I said, I have the evidence, it's factual, you know, and I said, if you want to pursue it, you need to find out if I can show you this and not violate HIPAA laws. Do you have access to look at and look at my evidence? And he goes, well, I don't know. And I said, well, why don't you know? It immediately turned into this adversarial thing, not by me, but by him. Yes. It was, it was just, I, I just can't tell you, but, you know, the advice I have for whistleblowers, especially, is like, you got a CYA. Don't yes, trust do. anybody. And it's like, you know, when you do, you know, file your complaint, expect a fight. Hey, Mike. You're going to be fighting whoever. It's yeah. good. It is good, good advice. I have my own whistleblower story, too. I'm down to about two minutes here, and you and I are going to have to wrap this up, unfortunately, close the show. Sure. But there was one more thing we said we wanted to talk about, and that was uh, how to how to some recommendations for veterans to help them navigate the VA. Did you have a couple of points to share on that? I do, and and, and here's the thing: is be persistent and, and resilient. Um, you know, know what your rights are. You know what healthcare you should be receiving, and document everything. I have no, you know, I don't care what sign they have on the VA about saying a recording is is not authorized. All this other stuff. You know, there's apps for your phone that you can get that can record stuff. You know, download those apps or buy a little uh, recorder, stick it in your pocket, ca- you know, carry a backpack in or keep it in or something. And also have a, have a notebook with you and make notations of what the doctor is telling you. And then you have a patient portal. After your appointment, wait a couple of days, look up what he said, on what he is claiming what happened during the appointment, okay? And if it's incorrect... You can actually make addendums to that to that record and say, no, this is not what I disagree. This is what I said. This is what he or she said, and go down through that thing. Always be polite and respectful, but document when you're treated rudely. And if you are, file a complaint. But the main thing I can tell you is be persistent, 
constantly check your medical records to make sure that they're getting things straight. And then for the veterans, for the people serving now and the people that have served, when you're going to the doctor in the military, do the same thing. And always, always, you know, keep up with getting copies of every visit you have with your doctor. Because when I got out of the military and started filing my service-connected stuff, I was shocked at what was not in my, in my records. Mike, I got to run, buddy. So yeah. unfortunately, I got to cut you off here. My brother, I know you're coming out for a visit soon. I love you. I can't wait to see you. Uh, for our, our listening audience, my brother Mike and I served together. This is not a guy that I met down at the corner here on the way in. We spent a lot of time together in the field. He's an incredible Marine, an incredible father, an incredible man. And uh, I'm happy to say that he's my brother. Can't wait to see you again when you get back out here to Philadelphia. We'll have to have you uh, on the show again sometime, my brother. We talked about a lot today, and I know it's a lot to take in and more that we could have got into with all that. I hope that all this will remind us all of the extraordinary legacy that we carry as veterans and as citizens of this great country. This legacy is one that's forged by the likes of Smedley Butler and the brave Marines who fought valiantly at Battle of Veracruz. They stood strong in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds and never wavered their commitment to the cause. These men, covered in the dust of battle, found the courage in the face of adversity, determination in the face of defeat, and resilience in the face of hardship. They were relentless, never backing down, never giving in. We must embody that same indomitable spirit in our daily lives. We must be the bearers of their legacy, standing up for what's right, standing up for each other, standing up for the values that we hold dear. In a world where convenience and safety often take precedence, it's easy to forget the cost of freedom. It's easy to forget that the liberties we enjoy today were bought with the blood, sweat, and tears of those who came before us. We are called to be the ones who dare to do the difficult, the improbable, even the impossible. Just remember, the obstacles we face today are but shadows of the challenges our forebearers overcame. Let their determination inspire us. Let their sacrifices remind us of our duty to protect and uphold the values they fought for. Let us not forget that freedom is a delicate thing, easily lost if not guarded with vigilance. Today, it may be them and uh, it may be them at the front lines, but tomorrow it could be us. We must stand united, ready to protect the freedoms we hold dear. For if we don't, the price will be paid by our children, our grandchildren, and generations yet unborn. Here's to the war pigs, to the fighters of yesterday and today, to the brave and the bold. Let us strive to honor them, not just in our words, but in our actions and our choices and the way we live our lives day after day. Let their courage be our guide, their conviction be our compass. Remember one final thing. We are not just listeners. We are not just spectators. We are part of a larger story, a larger story that is still being written. And it's up to us to make sure that this story, our story, is one of courage resilience, and unwavering commitment to the cause of freedom. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you to ST Engineering in Pennsburg for sponsoring this show. Thank you to the sound team here at WWDB. We appreciate the support and great work. Thank you, Beasley, for hosting us here. Don't forget to check out Don't Back Down with Stan Casaccio, Andy, and others. Wednesday at 1300 Hours, The Conservative Voice with Don Beischel, Friday at noon, all available on WWDB AM or WWDB AM Talks 60 app. Listen to the whole station. We've got more to come, an exciting show next week, and a lot more to talk about. I'm Chris Kunkel. I'll be back. Don't forget to visit projectchaos.org. See you next week.